Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chatterbox, the long-form business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Today's episode is a two-part chat with Paul Volcker, former chairman of the Federal Reserve. A bit of background first, Paul Volcker was born in 1927 in New Jersey, the son of Alma Volcker and Paul Volcker Sr. He studied economics at Princeton as an undergraduate in the 1940s and then at Harvard for graduate school. He did plan to finish his doctoral thesis at the London School of Economics before he got distracted, but I'll let him tell that story. In part one of this long conversation at his New York offices, we talk about his economics education, his early career at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the U.S. Treasury, and his role in ending the Bretton Woods system of global finance. These are times in his life that are now less remembered than his inflation-fighting days in the 1980s, but that were actually really important. Before we get started, uh, I want to acknowledge an intellectual debt for background on Volcker's life. I read a book called Volcker, The Triumph of Persistence by William Silber, and it was very helpful. And now, here's the start of my chat with Paul Volcker. First of all, uh, thanks for talking to us. Appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, here's where I want to start. When you were studying economics, those were pretty exciting times for the profession. Uh, Hayek and Keynes were still debating. Bretton Woods had been established in the mid-1940s. Central bank independence was still kind of a contentious topic. Who were some of the early influences on the way you think about monetary economics? Who are some of the thinkers that influenced uh, your points of view? Boy, I'm supposed to have some thinkers who influenced me. I don't remember any uh, standing out in particular. I took, for some reason, I took the advanced economic theory course when I was either a freshman or a sophomore at Princeton from a guy named Oscar Morgenstern, who was part of the uh, Jewish intellectuals moved to the United States before the war. And he was uh, Austrian, so you got a full exposure to the Austrian School of Economics. To the best of my memory, maybe my memory is wrong, I could sit through all those economics classes in Princeton. I don't think the word Keynes was ever mentioned. The word Keynes. Keynes. John Maynard yeah. Keynes. Uh, because money and banking professor, a guy by the name of Lutz, another Austrian uh, immigrant, uh, and they were not Keynesian. And in those days, it was, it, most professors, I guess, were not yet Keynesian, or at least it was controversial. Then when I went off to Harvard, and the first course you got, wasn't literally the first course, but one of the first courses you got from Alvin Hansen, who was the principal Keynesian Acolyte at Harvard, and all you heard about was Keynes, the general theory, beginning to end. So I had both sides of it. What did you think about uh, Hayek at the time? Well, Hayek, I read, actually, I picked up the the name of the book is, uh, I don't remember. The Road to Serfdom? Road to Serfdom. I, I found it at home one day. I began reading it. I read it in college, so... That was a good Austrian. I got assigned the road to search. I remember being, that did have an influence. It was a really very challenging uh, analysis of why free markets work and why they were necessary politically and so forth. But I began reading again. It seemed kind of dull. So <laughs> I didn't reread the whole thing, but it did excite, that's right. It did excite me in college. What about your early views on inflation and on uh, monetary stability? Well, I finally ended up writing my senior thesis about the Federal Reserve, and for some reason I expressed a good deal of irritation that they weren't spending more time worrying about inflation. Now, why Why I thought that, I don't know. Maybe my father was on salary all those years. <laughs> Something didn't get an increase. But uh, I was quite critical of the Federal Reserve for not paying enough attention to inflation. That goes back to when I was an undergraduate of all things. But I, I, I don't remember 
particular professor making a particular point about this, but certainly those Austrians that I had in college, I'm sure they were in favor of stability. It was a great debate that my thesis advisor, was a guy, and I was very shy. I never saw these professors. You had to see the professor when you were writing a thesis. And he explained to me the great debate in those days, whether it was better to have steady uh, wages and a gradually declining price level as productivity increased, or you have steady prices with a rising uh, wage level as productivity increased. But it's the opposite of the debate you have now. It's right. the debate with, do you have stability? Or is it better to have prices declining yeah. and stability in wages? So it's a different environment, obviously. I read in one of the biographies of you that one of your Harvard professors had said that a little bit of inflation was good for the economy, and you thought that that was, yeah, quote, I, 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 after all <laughs> BS. That, <laughs> after all that uh, Austrian exposure at Princeton, I went up there, and I, the first economics course I think I had as a graduate student in Harvard was Arthur Smithies, the name comes back to me. He wasn't one of the most famous professors, but he'd been in government. I guess he was well-known at the time. And session after session, he would drill into our head that a little inflation was a good thing. And I could never figure out why, but I know he kept saying it. So already at that time, I, for some reason, had an allergy to what he was saying. But he, it's, it's interesting that what he lectures is the same thing that central banks are saying today. Yeah. Except I don't think he would have limited it to 2%, but it's a similar argument. Would have gone up. Yeah, so uh, let me just lay out the beginning of this question for our listeners. You'll already know this. Uh, the conventional uh, defense of having a little bit of inflation is that if you have 0% inflation, then you're closer to having a deflationary spiral. Another one is that if you have a little bit of positive inflation, then interest rates will be correspondingly a bit higher. So if there's a downturn, you have room to lower them. Uh, and then finally, and I think this is associated with Janet Yellen quite a bit, is that if you have a little bit of inflation, then it's easier for companies to give real wage cuts to their employees without laying them off if they just freeze their wages and then they sort of go down because inflation. Yeah, well, uh, you disagree a, with all that. Well, that was a classic argument I guess a change would make. But uh, there's a further argument I learned the other day when I was chastising a Federal Reserve uh, official, why are you so hot on getting this 2% inflation? His immediate answer, so it wasn't Janet Yellen, <laughs> it was <laughs> his, uh, said, well, we think the, um, the statistics uh, overstate the real rate of uh, price increase, and if we got a 2% statistical indication of inflation, that really is stability, if it was correctly measured. If that's true, and you know, there may be some truth to that. If that's true, that it disrupts all the talk about lack of productivity growth and lack of real wages, because if we've been deflating the nominal figures by too high a uh, increase in the price level, productivity is really better than what we thought, and right. wages are really doing better than what we thought. And that may be some truth to that. But you're still you're still of um, the same opinion that you had back then well, about inflation. You know, I, I would never interpret it as you have to have exactly zero. Prices tend to go up or down a little bit, uh, depending upon whether the economy is booming or not booming. Uh, and I can understand making a fetish of a particular number, frankly. Okay. What you do want to create is a situation where people don't worry about pr prices going up and they don't make judgments based upon fears of inflation instead of a straightforward analysis of what the real economy is doing. And I must confess, I think it's something of a moral issue, too. The government uh, is responsible for money and, and responsible in a broader sense for the economy. And you shouldn't be kind of fooling people all the time by having an inflation they didn't expect. Now, the answer, well, if they inspect it, it's okay. But the inspector is not doing you any good anyway. Those arguments that you set forward mm -hmm. don't hold water if you're uh, inspecting it. You uh, graduated with your master's from Harvard. You spent some time in Europe thinking about pursuing a PhD. 
didn't do that. Well, that's not quite right. Okay. What how, what was the timeline? I was at Harvard, and they give you an MA when you pass your general examination for the PhD. And I went off to London to write the thesis. But I got lazy and found other things to do than writing a thesis in 1952, whenever it was. So I didn't get around to writing it. I went back and got a job. I mean, I wasn't intending to become a professor anyway. In those days, the idea of getting a PhD actually was not was not as common and was not considered de rigueur the way it is the way today. It is you returned uh, but, but I to regret New York. I, I, well, I don't know. As I, I, I had a good time. I learned a lot in London. I got around Europe. I didn't ran into a girlfriend. I mean, it was important. <laughs> Uh, you got distracted by a girlfriend I, in Europe. I, I got distracted. It probably helped me. So I don't think I really wasted my time, but sometimes I maybe I, yeah. <laughs> I should have gone back and done something. I had a good thesis topic, I must say, but it's irrelevant now. Oh, what was it? I'm curious. Well, uh, those days it would have been on monetary policy, but the difference in monetary policy and central banking between the U.S. that had a very... Uh, a diversified banking system, 14,000 banks, and what went on in the UK that in those days only had four or five banks that made a difference. They had four big banks and two big banks by our size, but they didn't have a lot of little banks. And, uh-huh. and did that make a difference in operating monetary policy and how you did it and the effectiveness thereof? Anyway, I never did it. Did you already have a conclusion about whether or not it, it altered the way monetary policy was transmitted? Uh, you know, I, an open mind. I didn't have a conclusion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I shouldn't tell these stories. But <laughs> I was at London School of Economics, and uh, I had a fellowship where I went, and by British standards, and in 1951-52, you know, the war still was over, but the, some of the destruction was still around. British economy wasn't very happy anyway, and London School of Economics really didn't cost anything. And I was given this fellowship that provided for living expenses and academic expenses. The academic expenses were zero or almost zero because London School of Economics. So I had enough money, uh, more money than all my student colleagues. And it's neither here nor there. I don't know why I got off on that subject. But I, when I went around, finally saw the professor. That was my tutor, who was a well-known uh, monetary historian and analyst, Richard Sayers. What was his name? Richard Sayers. Richard Sayers. S-A-Y-E-R-S. He wrote a great history of the Bank of England, among other things. But uh, I knocked on his door, and I entered in, and put a sandwich under his desk, and he was a very modest man. He said, I introduced myself, and he said, oh, you're an American student? Are you here to work? Or to play. <laughs> he asked you that just because yes, you were an American? That was the first sentence he <laughs> came out of his mouth. He had some experience, I'm sure, with American students that came and played. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's a great story. You you returned to New York and you took a job at the New York Fed uh, observing the uh, bond trading desk, I believe. Well, I came back and had a, took a job as economist. At the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, which I did, and I don't know, I can say junior status, probably intermediate status. Uh, you would never do that these days if you didn't have a PhD. <laughs> but, I, but I was an economist for two or three years, and then I, was it me who did it? It was my, my senior, my mentor who did it. He transferred me to the so-called trading desk. It was just a holy of holies in the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. That's where we actually operated in the market. We bought and sold securities and executing the open market operation, uh, open market committee's directives. And mere economists were not considered suitable for that delicate operation and understanding how markets worked and all the rest. And I was the first economist. Why, why were that economists exposure. considered suitable for that job? Well, they were academic people who didn't understand by instinct markets and didn't understand the importance of the inflection of your voice when you talked to the traders and whether you were giving away anything you shouldn't be giving away or you fully understood the inflections in their voice and so forth. Well, the guy that got me there was, was Bob Rosa, who was 
vice president of the bank. You, you was the most senior, very respected economist uh, then, and he had been moved. That was the real breakthrough. He was removed to be one of two or three people, senior officials in charge of the trading desk, and he's there for a little while, and he got me to go down there. He thought it was important to have some economists have some exposure to, did you to have, the market. Did you have ambitions even back then when you were very young to have a career that was mostly uh, in public service or in the public sector or the quasi-official sector, or did you just essentially take the job you could get uh, and you weren't really thinking well, about it yet? Well, more than taking the job I could get, but I, my father was always in, almost his life in public service, and I grew up in an environment where, and he was the city manager of the town I grew up in, and uh, that's all I knew as a kid. I, my father was, <laughs> was the city manager of the town, and that was an important thing, and he was very well respected in the town, and so, you know, you kind of looked up to him as <laughs> this was a reasonable career or whatever, it wasn't obviously hugely well paid or whatever. He used to keep telling me, now you go into business, don't do all this public interest stuff, but you know, it was monkey see, monkey do. <laughs> it's, uh, so I, I I wasn't very conscious about it, but it was a natural thing to do. And uh, when I first graduated from college, I, I graduated because was, the terms were mixed up after the war. I was I was one semester ahead of most of my classmates. And I graduated in February instead of June, and I was going to graduate school, which I knew in, in the fall, so I had eight or nine months. I had more than the summer off, and I went around knocking on doors in Washington, which you never do now. I knock on the door and said, I'd like a job for nine months for the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, a couple of other places I went. <laughs> you could imagine doing that now. But in those days, they listened to me. And I got offered one job, which I didn't take. And I went to the Federal Reserve. This is when I got out of college. And I I went to the Federal Reserve, knocked on the door, and the personnel people said, all right, well, you sit here, let's think about it. And two of the most senior economists showed up and interviewed me. And they finally said, well, I'm sorry, and you got good qualifications and so forth, but we don't hire people temporarily that don't have a graduate degree. So goodbye, come back some other time. So I always like to say I got turned down at the Federal Reserve for my right. first job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've been by, sort of by accident. I got this job at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, but I would also, as a flip of a coin, I might have gone to a, a private bank at the okay. time. So you, you worked at uh, the New York Fed for a few years following uh, Robert Rusa. In the mid-1950s, uh, you went to work for five years as a financial economist at a Chase Manhattan. Uh, what did you learn? Well, I learned about how banks work, so that was not a bad uh, experience. I it was in 57, I think, when I went over and they offered me a job out of, the, uh, out of the clear blue sky or dark clouds or whatever, and it was a 50% increase in salary or whatever yeah. it was. And uh, yeah, I was getting kind of warm. It was Federal Reserve could be a bit dull in those days, and it was a very bureaucratic institution. As the story about the trading desk, you know, you never saw the president and never talked to him. You wrote a memorandum. Sometimes you had a question, you would write a reply that went to your superior, that went to his superior. Finally, got on the president's desk, and the president may have written a note on it coming back through five <laughs> layers before you got it. Did you find that Chase was less bureaucratic? Well, much less bureaucratic. You may have thought Chase was a big bank for the time. You would have thought it was bureaucratic. I hadn't been there three weeks before the president called me up and said, look, I want, want you to look into something. And then he began discussing with me whether I thought the dollar was overvalued or something. I mean, <laughs> nobody in the Federal Reserve asked me <laughs> this kind of stuff. So uh, it was from my viewpoint, much less bureaucratic. Was that the, the primary lesson about working for the government versus working for the private sector? Yeah, I mean, private sector can be bureaucratic too, but it was, I, I think it was more peculiarity. The Federal Reserve Bank in New York was pretty rigid about it. It's much more than it would have been in Washington, I think. Okay. Uh, but it was less bureaucratic, but it was... Uh, 
I then could work with the desk, with their trading desk, which was an active trading desk. I wasn't on the desk, but I was sort of worked with those people. And so I had that exposure to an actual trading operation in the real world. And I, you know, I did projections of how much money we had to lend and I did relevant stuff for the bank. Did you also uh, gain an appreciation for both sides of it so that later when you went back to Treasury and the Fed, absolutely. you sort of understood what the banks were doing? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, it was an important part of my background. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 1962, you go to the Treasury Department. You're named Director of Financial Analysis, and then a year later or so, Treasury Deputy Undersecretary for Monetary Affairs. What brought you back to the government? What well, took you to what Treasury? What brought me and... back to the Treasury was what brought me to the trading desk in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Bob Rose had become Undersecretary of the Treasury for Monetary Affairs, and he'd been there a year. And, you know, it's hard to uh, replicate the atmosphere at that time, but Kennedy had been elected president. It was a new world. We were going to do everything good and solve all the economic problems have peace and prosperity in the world. I remember sitting, God, they're going to solve all the problems before I ever got out there. But <laughs> that didn't work out that way. But I, I got a, uh, Bob decided to set up a new group, Office of Financial Analysis, I guess it was called, to bring in some, some economic scholars to refresh the place. And so my job was to hire some of these people get them in, get them into, integrated into what the Treasury was doing. Turned out to be not a very good idea from my standpoint for two reasons. It's the government, you know, just doesn't, think tank within the government doesn't work very well. They're either actively involved in policy making and policy officials or they're not paying any attention to. So we did a little of that and we did the forecasting for the Treasury. But... Uh, Somebody and I got exposed to the other undersecretary, which is Joe Fowler, and to the Secretary of the Treasury. He's then Douglas Stolen, who became a kind of a hero of mine, and I, without any uh, great planning, sort of became the personal economist for Douglas Stolen, the Secretary. So I saw a lot of them. And then when uh, a guy named Dewey Dane, an old Federal Reserve man who had been Deputy Undersecretary, went to the Federal Reserve Board, I got his job which at that point then exposed me to the international negotiations. So I had a pretty broad experience in the Treasury, and I was in on the policy side, the economic side, the financial side of the Treasury, debt management and all that stuff was. And of course, the, the experience at Chase helped in that respect. A quick interlude here because this is the point in the conversation where Paul Volcker and I are going to start talking about Bretton Woods. That's the global monetary system that was agreed after the end of World War II. And there are two specific parts of Bretton Woods that you need to understand for this conversation. The first is a convertibility of the U.S. dollar to gold at a rate of $35 per ounce. This was meant to reinforce complete faith in the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. And the second is a system of fixed exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies. In other words, the number of dollars it took to buy, say, one British pound, or the number of Deutsche Marks it took to buy one U.S. dollar was always the same. The rates didn't fluctuate. The system did bring stability to international finance for a while. It supported more trade, more capital flows between countries, and this came after decades of war and depression. But eventually it also ran into problems that in hindsight seem inevitable, seem obvious. Now, this is where it gets a little complicated. So here's a simplified and, yes, necessarily oversimplified explanation. As the U.S. economy and the global economy grew, the number of dollars that circulated also grew. But the global supply of gold did not grow. So gold traders abroad and foreign central banks came to expect that eventually the price of convertibility would climb. In other words, gold would get more expensive. This led to massive speculative runs on various currencies and undermine the stability that the system was meant to provide. So for example, when the French central bank was worried that its dollars were losing value, it converted them into gold, which in turn made it harder for the U.S. government to defend the dollar's peg at $35 an ounce. And that in turn encouraged other central banks to convert their dollar reserves into gold too. As for fixed exchange rates, this is a similar problem. 
When the United States started running balance of payment deficits, other countries ended up with surplus dollars. So those countries favored tighter monetary policy on the part of the Federal Reserve to reinforce the value of those dollars. But domestic pressures often called for looser policy and weakening of the dollar to boost the U.S. economy. And more inflation in the U.S. would lead to speculative attacks on the dollar abroad, while a formal revaluation of the dollar against other currencies required agreement with other countries and sometimes IMF approval. But those countries often resisted, as strengthening their currencies made it harder for them to keep exporting their own goods. Volcker was reluctant to overturn a system that was meant to bring stability to global finance and also meant to retain faith in the strength of the dollar, which he's always cared about. But he was also a pragmatist, and over time it became clear that the negotiations between countries that would sustain the system were increasingly unlikely. And that's where we resume our chat. Here I want to start talking a bit about uh, Bretton Woods. You started to have some doubts while you were at Treasury about the gold convertibility part well, of it. Can you just talk about how you arrived uh, well, at that hesitation? Let's not and, get me to okay. doubts. Let me get to the conviction first. Okay. Okay. <laughs> What's the conviction? <laughs> well, the conviction of the Treasury, and, and Bob Rosa was the leader in all of this, was that the, uh, the dollar convertible into gold as the fulcrum for the exchange rate system internationally was not to be tampered with, was not to be questioned. It was fundamental to the Bretton Woods system, which everybody was very proud of having established at the end of World War II. And it was the sacred duty of the Treasury in the United States to defend that system. Uh, I began having some doubts whether that was going to be possible, but those I'll tell you, we're very much hidden. You expressed those doubts in the Treasury at that point, which I'm not saying I did, but maybe <laughs> in the back of my mind, you would have been put in a... In a silo uh, somewhere. In a silo somewhere. You put in a stool in the corner and the, and the dunce cap on. But it was, a, it was a constructive effort to cooperate internationally to defend this uh, basic apparatus of the international monetary system. And over time, beginning then, all kinds of initiatives were taken, largely led by Grozer. The swap agreements were established in, largely by the Federal Reserve, but it was Rosa who got the Federal Reserve to establish the swap agreements. We borrowed some money occasionally in foreign currencies, which had never been done before. We strengthened the IMF and special agreements to borrow, and on and on, and then began putting controls on some international transactions. We had something called the interest equalization tax, which is designed to discourage foreigners from borrowing in the United States, taking the dollars out of the United States, weakening the dollars. So it was a whole panoply of things began developing, developed to sustain the stability of the dollar. I was in a subordinate role, but I was <laughs> sort of in the middle of it too. That's Helping to implement some of these uh, uh, controls know, and some of these other ideas well, that Bob Rosa had. Eventually, when I became undersecretary, yes, I had to do all that. But uh, it was an interesting experience with, as I say, Douglas Tillman was a hero. <laughs> he left eventually when Johnson became president. And Henry Fowler, called Joe Fowler, became secretary, who I'd known because he had been undersecretary. And he became very friendly to me. I don't quite know why, because I'd worked much more closely with uh, Rosa. But uh, when Fowler came in, he wanted to reform the system, not reform those basic elements I talked about, but develop something to replace gold or to supplement gold, which had been a matter of discussion. But Rosa never wanted to talk about it because it raised some question. It had to be kept top. quiet. He wanted to keep it quiet, but... Uh, Fowler came in looking for something to do. He decided this is his story. He would go after reform of the system in that respect. And I told him that was a crazy idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, well, the interesting part of that experience was a, a big fight between the Federal Reserve and, and the Treasury to some degree. But William McChesney Martin, the then chairman of the Federal Reserve, and Lyndon Johnson had a battle. And uh, 
Federal Reserve finally won and exerted their independence. Mr. Johnson was not very happy. Yeah. And I was in a most peculiar position because I thought the Federal Reserve position was correct and the administration position was incorrect. Yeah. And I was asked to write stuff to defend, to defend, defend the, administration. the administration position. It was a little awkward. But I left about that time, right after that happened. But, did you leave for other reasons, or did you leave because you no, thought I, it was I, inconsistent? I, I think four or five years. It okay. Was, I think it was time to go. I had kids. And <laughs> sure. Uh, and you, you returned to Chase yeah, in 65 uh, as director of planning for four years? Right. That's right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't nearly as interesting as being in the trade, frankly. <laughs> it's interesting what you say, though, that you had some private doubts, uh, but that it was hard to express them at the time because Bretton Woods yeah, okay. was considered an unshakable part of global okay. stability. And by the time I came back, it was clearly shakable. <laughs> yeah. uh, but still, I felt responsible for defending it to the last gas, so to speak. I didn't want to become the engine for upsetting uh, the system. By that time, the SDR had been created, largely because of uh, Sadler's initiative, but it had never been used. And I actually, forget about this one, I, sitting here as Undersecretary for Monetary Affairs, this position's all been changed, and now Zillion Undersecretary. Right. There were just two when I was there, and there was no Deputy Secretary. I had to have the Treasury, and I had all the interesting part. I had all the domestic finance. International finance, debt management, credit programs. Right. Uh, what this else is, is there? This is nineteen sixty nine when you 19, went back to the Treasury. Uh, Undersecretary of Monetary Affairs. First, I think starting started working for a Treasury Secretary, uh, David Kennedy, was it? Yes. Uh, at the beginning. Here, here's my first question about that period in your life. You were a lifelong Democrat. Um, well, you weren't... That, no, that wasn't true. Right? Okay, you were a Democrat. <laughs> I was a Democrat. Uh, okay, I kind uh, of when I was young and naive. I, I guess my family, or at least my father, was Republican. Okay. I consider myself a Republican. But at that time, I had become, yes, a, a Democrat. A Democrat. Okay. No uh, question about it. You, you weren't Richard Nixon's biggest fan, uh, but when he asked you to come work in his administration, uh, you took the job. What convinced yeah. you to take what, the job? What, what convinced me to take the job? How could I turn down the job? It's uh, the most interesting job in Washington. I still think it's the best job I ever had. Why you say Nixon? Nixon, I don't think I had anything to do with it. Kennedy, apparently, who was turned out not to be a strong secretary, but he apparently put his foot down and insisted upon it, and I barely knew him. Now, the other undersecretary I did know, and he was a Republican, and he was close to Kennedy, and he must have vouched for me and pushed me, but it's still to this day, I don't quite know. I, for some reason, Kennedy just sat there, must have, because I was told times. I don't know it's true. I was the only acknowledged Democrat who was in the administration. And I'm sure, I mean, I've seen stuff since then. That Nixon was always suspicious of me. He never forgot that I, and not that I was that close to Nixon. I was not, but I, he, I'm sure, didn't quite trust me. You, you felt like an outsider in the administration. Well, not, I, not so much because I was very active. I had plenty to do when I got along with the secretary. And then John Connolly became the secretary, and I got along with him. So I never felt like an outsider. I was in the middle of it. But I, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I was not part of the White House <laughs> operation right. at all. But you were put in charge of an interagency uh, task force, and it was yes. even known as the Volcker Group. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there had been such a group. I don't know if the previous group had been immortalized in a presidential director, but <laughs> this is an <laughs> So he struck me as odd. I, I mean, compared to now, I was named or uh, nominated to become undersecretary, I guess informally. I couldn't be informally nominated until the president got inaugurated. But I was clear I was going to be nominated for undersecretary of monetary affairs. My office overlooked Pennsylvania Avenue, and I and uh, uh, election not election day, inaugural day, all the parades coming down Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm sitting in my new office. I was not entirely, I mean, as a private citizen, but everybody in those days, yeah, you're going to become undersecretary. Here's your office. And I got this memorandum from the National Security Council plunked on my desk. From Kissinger. From, from Kissinger. So outlaying the 
president arrangements for international monetary negotiations or something. So you're going to establish this group, and I would be the chairman, and Kissinger guy, and the State Department guy, and somebody else, Council of Economics guy, would be in this group, but I would become the chairman, and I would report to Henry Kissinger. How did that go over? <laughs> and I went running down to David Kennedy. I said, hey, you better do something. I set this up. This is fine for me, but it ain't so good for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you better do something with the White House. Better, I don't think he ever did anything. Was this a classic Kissinger power play, like trying to get you to report to him instead of to your well, actual I boss? I don't know how much it – I think one of Kissinger's staff members, who I knew at the time and I know very well since, I think he had an interest in international monetary affairs, so I suspect he cooked this up and gave it to Kissinger. He said, this is the way we ought to organize. I just think I don't think – Kissinger would have given it heavy, heavy attention, but I don't, I don't know the answer to the question. But anyway, de facto, I never reported to Kissinger. I reported yeah. to Secretary of the Treasury. Sure. Hey, your boss. Uh, he was my boss. So you, you're the head of this uh, task force, and then in June 1969, uh, you presented some of the conclusions to Nixon and some of the other economic brain trust, and. You said that the potential threat to the U.S. dollar's role was, and I'm quoting here, a common recognition at large-scale conversion of U.S. dollars into gold would be frustrated by a lack of adequate gold reserves and that driving the wish to, to convert were domestic uh, inflationary pressures. And this was where uh, you first suggested that one day the possibility of suspending the convertibility of U.S. dollars into gold might be necessary. Nixon later on did accept parts of that plan. Uh, but before we get to that, I'm curious to know how uh, Nixon reacted in the moment uh, when you presented the ideas. Well, I, uh, you may be quoting correctly, but it was put in the context of this may be a possibility, but we're going to fight that for the moment. We've got, to give, we've got to give sustaining the system a fair chance, and we'll go out and we'll create a lot of SDRs and do other things to defend the system. But it may not work. <laughs> It, uh, but this is the course that we recommended. And I think, frankly, Nixon got tired of listening after a while. And he said, okay, enough. And <laughs> off we went. And I took that as, you know, agreeing. That's agree. the policy. Yeah, it's the policy, yeah. So this, this was interesting, too, because although you still believed in the stability brought by Bretton Woods, at the time you were also recommending a limited amount of uh, exchange rate flexibility and a revaluation of the dollar against some well, other we, foreign currencies. Yeah, we were recommended some widening of the band so forth to get a little flexibility. I don't remember all the all the details. You you read something that I you have read more recently. Than <laughs> I don't remember. I remember we sent this big report into, uh, and one of the possibilities was doing what some people. Particularly Republicans are recommending, why don't we change the price, double the price of gold and go on and we can do that. And that memorandum you're talking about strongly rejected that course. It would have, it would have sent Bob Rosa to his grave earlier than that. <laughs> <laughs> Here's more of, a, I guess, a philosophical question. In economics, there's this idea of the monetary trilemma, which says that for our listeners, you can have uh, two of the following three things, but not all three. Uh, and those things are fixed exchange rates, free capital flows, or an independent monetary policy. Your preference seems to have been for fixed exchange rates, as were called for by Bretton Woods. No capital controls because you'd had some experience with that and you weren't convinced yeah, they were going to work. Um, yeah. And, and you wanted monetary policy to be consistent across countries to make sure that no one country would drive up inflation at the expense of global monetary uh, stability. Uh, how did you arrive at that guess, preference? Or is that not what, right? Well, I, I guess that's a fair summary, but I I, did, I, was, I didn't want to go to a floating system. I was worried about the instability that would create. And the whole question was how you could get the adjustments going, particularly at that point with Germany but increasingly with Japan because they were running the big surpluses and they couldn't run the big surpluses and we were on a deficit all the time and sustain 
the position we were in. So we were going to fight it out, I guess, as long as it seemed reasonable. And it worried me more than that trilemma, which I don't deny that trilemma broadly over time, but <laughs> more to the point was the so-called Triffin Dilemma, which still exists. Uh, Triffin Dilemma said you can't keep providing international reserves by more and more dollars outstanding and maintain the price of gold because the disproportion sooner or later would become so great that it no longer became uh, sustainable. That was the dilemma that we were with, <laughs> and that was the dilemma that the SDR was supposed to help cure. We can create a lot of SDRs, so in effect we would have supplement the gold supply with artificial gold. Anyway, uh, what happened then, nearly as I can remember, well, there was a sense of crisis when I took office, and so that's not because I took office. <laughs> 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 there had been a crisis in the gold market before and a lot of international, unsuccessful international negotiations at the end of the previous administration. But I guess it was in, uh, what are we talking about, seven, uh, that'd be 1970, I guess. For other reasons, the Federal Reserve tightened policy. And that took the pressure off the dollar for a while. So uh, we had a kind of free ride <laughs> for a year or more mm -hmm. where you didn't have to face the inevitable if it was inevitable. You had a little more time to work it out, but gave us a year, but it didn't give us, it couldn't be worked out. It was impossible. You were then, and I, I'm assuming you are now, someone who's always believed that the Fed should take into account international considerations. Do you see any parallels between the lessons back then and some of the more common worries now where Federal Reserve policy might drive some international capital flows? Should the Fed always take into account uh, well, what's happening abroad? I mean, you can't. You ought to be knowledgeable about it, but the, uh, it's not often you can take a lot of account of it. And typically, I'm sure to this day, the uh, Federal Reserve as a decision-making body, I guess inevitably, the domestic priority is so strong and the only, now, now I will exaggerate, the only okay. person who cares about the international side is the chairman. Now, that's not absolutely true, but it, it tends to be true. He's the one who is exposed to the, that range of policy issues more closely than the others. But in the end, you can't you, know, you can't go entirely contrary to domestic policy. No, no central bank can. I mean, they're, they are instruments of your home government. They're not instruments of the world. But there are times when you can get cooperation and work together. And it happens okay. at times. Let's go ahead to 1971. Nixon announces the new plan, uh, suspending gold convertibility, and he adds a temporary wage price freeze and also a temporary import uh, surcharge. Uh, some of those ideas uh, coming directly from you and from John Connolly. Well, there was some turmoil in global the, finance. The good ideas came from me. The good ideas came from you. Okay, good. <laughs> I think the import surcharge was his idea. The right? import surcharge uh, was definitely Connolly's idea. Okay. The temporary suspension of gold convertibility and the wage price freeze uh, came from you. Well, yeah, um, I wasn't alone. But I, I, not alone. I had concluded... Oh, probably six months earlier, it was inevitable that we were going to have to change the present, the then present system. It's just a question of how you did it, when you did it. And I had all kinds of plans in my mind and on paper and so forth. Connolly became Secretary of the Treasury early that year. And for whatever reasons, he was certainly, I think, favorable, looking for an avenue which should change constructive change. I mean, people think he was looking for destructive change. Destructive change <laughs> instead of constructive change. I was change. looking for constructive change. And I'd written some stuff for him, which I'm sure he circulated around. My, my concern was there was no way of negotiating a change in the system. And there were two big interests at stake, and you're never going to... It would take a big change in, in exchange rates. And... There was nothing you could negotiate 
quietly and then have it all have, have everybody agree on a big change. You had to have some force behind the proposal. And the only way to do it would be to say, I'm sorry, we simply don't have the resources to provide gold upon demand anymore. Fortuitously, right at the time of the decision making, we had some demands which you couldn't possibly have met. Uh, but my idea, the great plan was we'd float for a while, negotiate a change in exchange rates that is adequate. And that was the plan that was accepted at Camp David and so forth. But one big important thing to me was left out. Well, something put in that I, I didn't like was the was the surcharge because uh, that you know, put in the antagonistic. <laughs> it would maybe be interpreted as the U.S. Uh, waging uh, right, kind of an right. economic I, battle I against other countries. Negotiations more difficult. Connolly obviously thought it would make the negotiations easier. Right. <laughs> he may have been right. I don't know, but it was uh, it was not my idea. But uh, my idea was as soon as we could get a reasonable exchange rate adjustment. Then we ought to negotiate a change in the system that would uh, offer some continuing stability in the international monetary system. Right. Well, from the politician standpoint, I was naive at the time. You know, that was something for the future. That's not what <laughs> that's not what worried them at the moment. So we didn't get any commitment to that. And it was, you know, from my naive standpoint, Connolly and Nixon between them made the suspension of gold a great political victory. You know, most people, when they're devaluing and changing the, the currency, it's, um, it's a problem. Forgive us. We'll go back. We'll do better next time. Yeah. Uh, with them, they made it into a triumph, which is a remarkable political lesson to me. But, yeah. but there was no urgency for reform. Right. Now, later, we had the devaluation. It wasn't adequate. We had the realignment of exchange rates. We changed the price of gold, which made reform more difficult in my mind. But we did then have a negotiation to put the system back together again. And at least in the time we had available, we couldn't reach an adequate agreement. So in order, uh, the, U the UK floated, then later the Japanese, and then eventually hmm. most of the rest of Europe. Well, uh, what happened was we agreed upon these new exchange rates at the so-called Smithsonian. From my standpoint, anyway, the exchange rate change was not adequate. It was sizable, but it wasn't adequate to deal with our balance of payments problem. So it was inevitable we'd come under pressure again, and the politicians are certainly dead set against this, but I couldn't argue against it. We couldn't resume convertibility because it's it was obvious it couldn't last, but we try it out and see what happened without the convertibility. We had the fixed exchange rates. And I think it was in the summer that the British were first to change, and they didn't have a very strong reason to do it. They were under modest pressure, but not heavy pressure. Then there was a disturbance in the exchange markets in Europe in January, I guess, of what would have been January of 72. And there was a lot of training of exchange markets in Europe. And I said, look, this is our chance to get a decent exchange rate change. Why don't we use this? Everything is up in the air anyway. Why don't we use this to negotiate a reasonable exchange rate change from the dollar? So I'm running off to Japan and running off to Europe. And we negotiated this further sizable exchange rate change in the dollar, but there was not enough commitment to it, particularly I, I mean, my own feeling was we changed the price of gold again, that did be a further speculation in the gold market, which there was, and that was too difficult to keep the exchange rate steady. So we ended up, for lack of anything better to do, floating, which some people in the United States liked anyway. So that's where we were then, that's where we are today. Yeah. Did you think after it became obvious that a system of floating exchange rates was inevitable, were you still somewhat hopeful that yes. the benefits of Bretton Woods could at least be replicated under a floating no, exchange I, rate I, I system? You couldn't go back to the rigidity, all the rigidities of the 
literal Bretton Woods system, but could you have a system that provided for more stability in exchange rates? Yes, I thought so then. I think so. I think so now, but it's been so long since we've done it. It's hard. I, not many people are inclined, or countries are inclined to enter into that negotiation. There have been some advocates here and there, and uh, in this so-called group of 30 I used to be chairman of where a lot of central bankers and finance officials and as they get together, I attended part of a recent meeting and somebody said, we really ought to attach priority to monetary reform, do something to get more stability. And one or two others thought, that's right. And everybody else sat there and gave it no support, which is a fair fair characterization of the, the mood around the world in terms of getting a more stable exchange rate system. Someday, but not right now. And that is the end of part one. Be sure to download part two for our chat about Volcker's time at the Fed and what he's been up to since. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.